Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm just going to stand up briefly to make uh, some introductory remarks, but then I'm going to sit down. I ask not to have the lectern, and I ask to sit down just like the rest of you, because I don't want to be seen here today as some kind of authority figure. I want this to be um, a dialogue, uh, not a monologue, or not a Q&A session between me and every individual who asks questions. I want this to become uh, a general discussion uh, of the causes of the Civil War which is our topic for both seminars today. But as I uh, pointed out in the material that uh, was sent to you, and as I think is clear enough from the reading materials, uh, that's two questions rather than one question, or at least I've divided it into two parts. It actually could be divided into more than two parts, but two general categories. And as we go along, I think we'll see that there are also a number of subcategories or corollaries to those two general questions The first of these two, and that will be the focus of the first of our two seminars today for the next hour and a half or so, is why did the South secede? And I would add to that uh, an important corollary, uh, which is crucial, I think, for understanding or trying to understand the answer to that question. Why did the South secede, or the first seven southern states secede in December of 1860 and January of 1861 rather than some other time. (coughs) And the second question, which we'll look at after lunch, is why did secession lead to war? And the corollary, or at least the implied set of corollaries to that question is that war was not an inevitable consequence of secession. There were alternatives. Why didn't any of those alternatives come to pass, but instead uh, the the terrible war that we know followed for the next four years in which more than 620,000 people were killed uh, took place? So these are the two large categories of questions. And obviously... There wouldn't have been a war if there hadn't been secession, or maybe it's not so obvious. Maybe there would have been a war, and that might be something we want to talk about. These two questions, however, are pretty closely linked to each other. Uh, But nevertheless, I think it's important to separate them for purposes of analysis. And the reason I've done that is because over the years I've gotten a lot of questions from students and from audiences to which I speak. Um, about, you know, what are the causes of the Civil War, what was the cause of the Civil War, as if there was just one cause of the war, and that there was a simple answer, and just from experience, I have learned to to divide it into these two large categories of questions as a way of trying to understand uh, the, the bottom line answer to the question of why the Civil War happened. Uh, And as I hope we do in the course of the discussion this morning and again this afternoon, uh, look at the complexity of both of these general categories of questions, the various corollary questions, the various alternatives, uh, the the various roads not taken, if you will, uh, that eventually led to the war that started in April of 1861. 
Now, as Peter Schramm said, uh, I don't want you to uh, think that I have all the answers or that the answers I do have uh, are absolutely right and that nobody can disagree with me. I've done something today that I've learned through many years of experience in teaching undergraduates and graduate students at Princeton uh, that you shouldn't do. And that is I've assigned in the reading some of my own writings. Uh, if I do that with students, whether they're undergraduates or graduates, I found that they will rarely disagree with me. They'll rarely challenge me. And the, the reason why is, is obvious. They think that if they disagree with me, no matter how, how much I deny this, they think that if they disagree with me, they're somehow going to get a lower grade, that I'm going to think poorly of them, that I'm going to, you know, get mad at them. Uh, now, I'm not grading you. There's no grades in that. <laughs> uh, and you're all adults. Uh, you all, you're all teachers. Uh, you know the, the best classroom techniques involve uh, discussion of, of different points of view rather than just one point of view. So I'm, I will be disappointed if some of you don't rise up and challenge what you think is my position. Uh, now, it may be that, I think there are, what, 50-some people here? It may be that 49 out of the 50 of you do agree with me, uh, or maybe all 50 of you on a certain question. But I'm sure in your own teaching you've used the technique of uh, devil's advocate. So I'm hoping that even if you do agree with me, uh, that somebody or several people will use the devil advocate, uh, devil's advocate, advocate uh, technique to raise uh, alternative interpretations and alternative points of view on many of these controversial questions. And it's pretty obvious how controversial the issue of uh, what caused the Civil War uh, because uh, maybe for your amusement, but I hope also for your enlightenment, I included um, dozens and dozens of letters uh, that were written to the magazine North and South in response to my article on that question, what caused the Civil War, and I think that makes pretty clear to you uh, that not 100% of the people in the United States agree with me. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, this is obviously a controversial question. It's a question that arouses passions uh, that uh, no doubt some of you may have encountered as well. I hope we can keep the discussion here fairly dispassionate. I don't want any fistfights, but I do want I, I do want um, um, disagreement, if you will. Uh, maybe we will eventually arrive at some kind of consensus, but the process of arriving at consensus is one of uh, discussing alternatives, discussing different points of view, discussing different interpretations. Um, and, and actually, I, I hope we don't really arrive at some kind of consensus, because if, if there was his consensus on historical questions, historians would be out of business. Uh, if we all agreed on everything, there'd be no need for historians to go out and write a new article or a new book. Uh, so historians, including me, don't want consensus, uh, because, you know, we, we uh, wouldn't have anything more to do. So that is the, uh, that's what I hope will happen today, is, um, is this kind of uh, dialogue, uh, or what's the word for, uh, for many people, dialogue implies exchange between people, the two people. I want multiple exchanges among all of us here today. Um, so 
that that's the background uh, on how we're going to proceed. Any, any questions? These are sort of procedural questions. Any any uh, any questions you have about this this mode of procedure before we actually get started? Okay. Um, well, let me let me raise the large question uh, with its corollary, and that is why did seven seven, uh, seven states secede from the United States in December of 1860 and January of 1861, and the corollary to that is why then, rather than some other time uh, at an earlier crisis. How do you go about answering that question for your students or for each other? And I hope somebody will start the ball rolling. So I'll start with uh, Lauren Stucker, right? Yeah, the uh, thing that I've always said is because of uh, Lincoln's election after the, after the political discussion led up to that election, uh, when they saw that he was going to be elected, they... Okay, the, the answer that uh, Lauren Stucker gives to the question, I think basically the timing question, why in December of 1860 and 61 is that it was a response to Lincoln's election. But that, of course, invites further question. Why did they succeed in response to Lincoln's election? I mean, all right, uh, let me, um, I, I don't know what your politics are in contemporary politics, but there are a number of people I know uh, who were so unhappy with George W. Bush's election last November that they they didn't talk about that. Nobody in New Jersey that I'm aware of or Massachusetts talked about seceding from the United States, but there were certain individuals who thought, hmm, I wonder if I should move to Canada or Australia. Can I live another four years under George W. Bush? Okay, so, I mean, basically, that's uh, why did seven southern states say we can't live for four years under Abraham Lincoln? Yeah, back there. Why don't you identify yourself? Okay. <laughs> For years, South Carolina was right? Yes. In, started in the 1830s. I think they finally got somebody to go along with them. But it seems to me that if you talk about something long enough, and if you look at the congressional record from about 1936 on, there's like a secession discussion in the Senate almost every single year. And if you, it seems like if you talk about something long enough, then it you know, becomes like an idea, and South Carolina got somebody to go along with them. Okay. Um, so your argument is that uh, South Carolina was perpetually threatening secession, or at least from the nullification crisis in 1832 on. Well, why did they get somebody to go along with them? Why didn't why didn't other southern states go along with them in 1832 or in 1850, for example, when they threatened? Again, this is yeah, Laurie Hall. Huh? I think they just saw Lincoln as the person that would actually do something about slavery. For some reason, they just pictured Lincoln as like um, the savior of the slaves, and they were just so deathly afraid of him as a person. Okay, they feared that Lincoln posed a threat to the existence of slavery. Why would they think that? Lincoln had said over and over again that he had no intention to interfere with slavery in the states. I saw Tim Smith here first. Well, I think it's because they finally realized they had lost their political control in Congress. Everybody hear that? No. The South lost their political hegemony in Congress that they had held through the whole antebellum period. Okay, so a lot of other hands. Well, over here, I can't see who you are, but 
First of all, I grew up in Oklahoma, and I was 15 years old before I knew that damn Yankees was two words. <laughs> One thing I ask my students to do in the blackboard of minds, write the word eliminate. And when Lincoln and other irresponsible politicians wanted to limit the spread of slavery, it was the first step in the elimination of slavery. The South was threatened. It had been threatened for years in South Carolina and other places. And uh, the structure in which our society, our economics, our political system is all based on slavery. So with politicians acting irresponsibly, uh, they have no alternative. Okay. Um, some other hands. First of all, I want to come back to a couple of the points you made. Yes. I, I, I just kind of follow up. I, I think that uh, we have a hierarchy system in, in the South. Uh, they were threatened uh, by, the, by the taking away of slavery, the taking away of their class system that they had set up over all of that time period. They had lost uh, their, their power, I, and they knew it. Uh, because in the in the uh, Lincoln-Douglas debates and, and in the election of, of uh, 1856, uh, these things had been written so very well in the newspapers that among that hierarchy in the South, they knew there wasn't any question as to what direction this was going to go. No matter how many times Abraham Lincoln said anything, it didn't make any difference. Uh, he, they knew that the Ohio politicians, that the New York politicians were going to let, and the Massachusetts people were going to let this thing uh, go towards anti-slavery, uh, period. So they had lost. Uh, so, yeah, they were threatened. I think that it had to do a lot with the economic expansion of, economic expansion of the Southern agricultural base because the South saw... Lincoln and the North and the people who were going to come into power as threatening the economic base and the expansion because for cotton and for the Southern agriculture you need to expand you need to expand and they wanted to have more production of slavery and they wanted to expand the slavery base and the agricultural base and they saw that Lincoln and the Republicans <coughs> coming into office were going to threaten the expansion of slavery and the expansion of their way of life, which they hold very dear. So I think that that's why they decided that, that they saw, among other things, they saw this and they said, well, this can't be, so therefore it's about time that we um, secede. So I'm right now here and then the gentleman back there. Yeah. I don't know. It seems to me that there a lot of what was going on then that led up to the split is uh, parallel with some of the attitudes uh, of people's polarities today. And although I think that a lot of it has to do with economics and all of that and it underlies people's views, but it seemed to me that the South believed that the North no longer was part of them. In other words, it came to an us and them situation. Those people are not like us, and they don't understand us, and why are we <coughs> part of, why would we stay connected with them? The, the South could no longer see itself 
as sharing any of the values of the North. Okay, yes. Yeah, um, you know, I, I don't know that, to me personally, there was much that Lincoln had won the election because they, the South still held on to, I mean, they controlled the, uh, the Congress, they, they dominated the, uh, the key uh, uh, chairs of the committees and so forth. It seems to me what the real estate they came to by 1860 was that the attitude of the North and that this, the power of this, this free soil ideology and the glorification of labor uh, was going, they were going to have to fight this from here on out. They had, they had pretty much tried, you know, they tried other avenues, uh, trying to re revise compromises. They tried to filibuster moving into, into the South. Um, and of course, they were resisting all fronts there. Uh, to me, that realization that the attitude of the North was going to prevent them. So the best thing to do is just get, to, to get out of this at that point. I wonder if they thought their, that their rights wouldn't be protected as a minority. Um, if you, I read on a listserv for AP History, I don't know if anybody's on it, James Lowen, I think that's his name, they wrote, don't know much about history, suggested that if you want to know why they seceded, why don't you read what they said? South Carolina, um, you know, secession. And they talk a lot about the fugitive slave law and how the North, you know, wasn't enforcing it. So I'm wondering if they thought, well, gee, our, our rights as a minority aren't going to be protected because the North isn't, you know, obeying the fugitive slave, you know, isn't following through with that. And if Lincoln's the president, how can we be sure that our rights will be protected despite his assurances? Well, just, uh, just to um, intervene a bit here, isn't that uh, a fairly irrational position for the South to take in the sense that if they secede and now their slaves right. escape to a foreign country, are they more likely to get them back <coughs> than by remaining in the Union? Uh, so it, it does seem to me that the <coughs> secession in response to the North's non-enforcement of the Fugitive Slave Act is a fairly irrational position to take. Maybe you think that secession as a whole is totally irrational, um, but that specific as aspect of it does seem to me uh, to to be almost counter counterproductive. You, do you agree? Well, I do. I do. I mean, I was sort of interested when I read that, that they were so interested, <clears throat> that that was so important, you know, to them, that the fugitive slave, well, they talked a lot about it, and I think uh, Lowen's point was, you know, this whole notion of states' rights, that they weren't interested in states' rights, you know. I mean, they were interested in, in preserving slavery. I mean, um, so, uh, yeah, I, I just found that interesting, that that's what, and that may have been rhetoric, you know, um, you know, that they put forward. Well, let's stick, to, so let's stick to this particular issue for a moment, because I don't want to lose it. Is it possible that their objection to the North's attitude, or at least the attitude of many Northerners and a lot of Northern states that had personal liberty laws was less a substantive attitude, because after all, only a few hundred slaves every year actually escaped out of four million. Uh, so it's not as if this is, um, it's not like this was East Germany uh, in 1989, where you know hundreds of thousands of people were escaping across the border trying to uh, into West Germany. Um, is this really a matter of honor for the southern states that somehow the North's refusal was uh, an implication that uh, that slavery was immoral and escaping from slavery was 
you know, a quest for freedom that indicated that slavery was somehow un-American and un-Christian. Uh, and they couldn't, they couldn't tolerate this insult to their honor. And a lot of the rhetoric that you talk about seems to indicate that that yeah. might have been the case. Yeah. And that would be exasperated by the fact that now you're going to allow, as you add new states, do the math, and they can actually codify uh, a law says that it's you can't have slavery. What's that say about slavery? Mm, that's What's another thing. The, the prohibition of slavery in the, in the territories is no. also an insult to some their, their Their hold on this is going to get less and less and less because, uh, you know, I don't know how much they thought about a constitutional amendment banning slavery being a possibility. It was it was less a possibility then, but as you add states and you had states coming in that were, were not slave states, you're certainly going to build the attitude that uh, maybe we should just go ahead and outlaw it, period, by the Constitution. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to I want to hold and, and reserve this question of constitutional amendment on slavery for the second hour for, for the post lunch discussion because part of the compromise effort to after secession was actually to guarantee the perpetuity of slavery by a constitutional amendment, which Southerners so we want we don't want to talk about that. Saw a lot of hands. Maybe over here first. Oh, my name is Joe from Overland. Um, couple things. Somebody brought up something about losing power in the uh, Congress, and I think that has a lot to do with it. But from what my understanding is, and I know this may seem controversial, but I think slavery was part of the issue, but I still feel it goes back to state rights, whether it goes to the nullification crisis we had over tariffs in the 30s. Um, my belief is that through the Compromise of 1850 with men, men like John C. Calhoun from the South, who respected uh, South Carolinian, didn't support. And with... Um, Lincoln's outspoken position during the Douglas debates about um, moral principles, a man who was less interested in um, swaying for popular votes than he was in protecting liberty. And I think it was based then upon the Southerners viewing liberty as best preserved in small republics like the states, and Northerners (coughs) viewing that the federal government was the overseer of that, the referee of that. Um, as we started to talk about the federal government asserting its position on slavery, whether it was outlawing the importation of slaves in 1808 or the further expansion of slaves into the Western territories, California entering as a free state in 1850 was a major discussion. Um, I think the Southerners did feel that they were just losing their influence in the federal government and reverted back to a number of conventions that they met in Alabama, the platform, and so forth, that uh, they finally <coughs> deciding that we can best preserve our way of life by uh, removing ourselves from this from this union. Okay. Some other hands. Yes. Um, could Lincoln have ended slavery by executive order? I mean, there seems to be this irrational fear of his election is to be the, the you know the break, the straw that breaks the camel's back. There's so much literature and talking newspapers and what have you up to how bad his election would be. I'm talking about in the period in the period. Could he was it within his power to end it by executive order? What do you think the answer to that question is? Um I don't I don't know. I don't Anybody know else? No. how powerful the no. president no. was. No, not under the not under the constitution. Uh, the president the Constitution had, has like 12 safeguards. I mean, they would have had to yes. restructure the Constitution to, to they have to strike out a whole lot of stuff in order to... Order I, I, don't, I don't think anybody, even the most uh, rabid fire eater in the South, uh, thought that the president of the United States could or would 
abolish slavery by executive order. Uh, that was not what they were really concerned about. Then isn't that irrational? Uh, well, uh, they, 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 they didn't see Lincoln's election as a threat that he would abolish slavery by executive order. I think they saw it as, a, as an indication that they had lost control. I mean, he was elected with no votes at all. No, no electoral votes and only a handful of popular votes from the 15 slave states. So clearly, the North now could elect a president of the United States, the free states could elect a president of the United States without any electoral vote in the South. Uh, and, and even though, as somebody said a moment ago, uh, the South still retained uh, control of the, or I mean the Democratic Party, should say, not the South. Uh, still retain control in the Senate and in the House. Uh, I think most Southerners saw Lincoln's election as a handwriting on the wall that they would eventually lose control of Congress and the Supreme Court. And for that matter, as you know, in the election of 1860, the Democratic Party had split into the Douglas wing, Stephen Douglas, and the Southern Rights Democrats who nominated John C. Breckinridge, so the Democratic Party, in the eyes of the, of, of the Southern rights people, and Breckinridge carried 10 states, um, was no longer, the, 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 the Democratic Party was no longer a bulwark of slavery as it had been before because they had, they had lost faith in Douglas, too, by 1860. So it wasn't, but it wasn't the, it wasn't the executive order of the president that was, was an issue, I think. It was the, the fear uh, that if slavery could not expand, and if the South lost control of the Supreme Court and Congress as well as the presidency, that a series of steps would eventually relegate them to a permanent minority that can no longer protect their rights within the Union. Uh, I think that was... But, and, and uh, I mean, there's also the element of irrationality that you mentioned and that came up, on the, uh, came up with respect to the Fugitive Slave Law. Uh, they were being governed. You could argue that a lot of Southerners were being governed by their fears rather than by a rational appraisal of the situation that existed after Lincoln's election. And there were a lot of Southerners. For example, example Alexander Stevens of Georgia, who, as you know, eventually became vice president of the Confederacy, but opposed secession or opposed immediate secession in the Georgia Secession Convention uh, on the grounds that, look, we may have lost the presidency in this election, but we still have control of of Congress and there's another election in 1862 and there'll be another election in 1864 um, and you know we shouldn't just leave because we've lost an election that's irrational so there were a lot of southerners who were arguing precisely that but they were overborne I think by, by fears and by passion and of course once Georgia a majority of the delegates in Georgia <coughs> declared for secession Stevens went along with them <coughs> he felt he had to um, so there's, there's that kind of snowball effect that goes on here that in the, in the long run just runs over uh, some of the voices of, of, um, of, of caution and of moderation in the South. Several other hands. Yes, go ahead. I've got a small point. Okay, well, small points sometimes are big. Sometimes, but this part, this situation with population in the Southern mind, uh, there was a compact between the northern states and the southern states that have gone clear back to the uh, founding of the Constitution itself, and uh, that their slaves actually counted uh, for, but they've lost that now. 
uh, the Fugitive Slave Law was just a, a redoing of that and said, okay, we are going to live with what our word was clear back and we're going to maintain that uh, a slave is worth so much uh, for uh, representation. But in the 19, or 1860 election, just following what <coughs> talking about, they realized that they had lost it all, that there was no way that even with all of the slaves that they had, uh, and especially now that there was this feeling they were all leaving and going north, even though that wasn't the case, uh, that uh, we were going to abide by the rules that we had set up uh, over all that time period. So now, emotionally, there was no turning back. Uh, this had shown them that the population in the north was going to overshadow everything that, that they had wanted or, or seen. And it, it was an emotional, a, a uh, passionate plea that the south was, was dead in this union. Well, I think that's right. And, and, and these comments actually suggest another interesting question, which it might be worth looking at for a moment. And that is, why did Lincoln carry every free state? In some cases, uh, New Jersey, California, and Oregon, it was by a plurality and not a majority. But these were all small states and, and uh, with few electoral votes. And in every other state, in the, every other free state, he actually got a majority of the votes. And he would have been elected president even without those three small plurality states. Why? I mean, why? I mean, we talk today about a blue state, red state divide in this country. I mean, look at 1860. Um, here, here, is, here is a president who carries every state, a candidate who carries every state um, that has one kind of social system and no states at all that have a different kind of social system, slavery. Why? Why did Lincoln carry every northern state? No other president ever had done so up before 1860. Yeah. Obviously, the Democratic Party has weakened itself by splitting. We um, <coughs> have a growing abolitionist mindset throughout the North, the morality issue of the right and wrong, not the economics of slavery. And um, because of that, he was just the right man at the right time. But it seems that the Republican Party had formed conscience Whigs, free soils, abolitionist people had joined to do that. And as far as timing is concerned, it seems like the South realized, well, this is this is the time for us to bow out. We're, we're sunk if we stick around. Um, so to them, you know, combination of issues, obviously. Okay. So lots of other hands back here. Yes, right here first. Um, I don't have much of a voice, but uh, I think the morality issue that was just brought up was uh, a major aspect of Southern antipathy towards Lincoln. I think uh, we have to understand that the Southern leadership, Calhoun et al., were uh, in the old aristocratic tradition of well-read, well-informed. And I think they uh, knew the implications of Lincoln's positions and saw in him um, what we may see in retrospect uh, the, uh, the then current uh, uh, gem of, or germ of 
the Constitution and the Founding Fathers. I mean, the, the Southerners were aware of, uh, of Washington and even, and he's pivotal, of course, in our founding, but they, they were aware that Washington freed his slaves and so on. I think the Southerners uh, felt that uh, they were being surrounded. The abolitionists were gaining, of course, in the North, and the Southerners uh, uh, were aware of this constitutional thing because the whole rationale for, for slavery, that is, owning uh, one human being, had to be justified by the fact that they weren't really human beings. So they felt surrounded. I also think that they were getting a little nervous about this aspect combined with four million uh, slaves, that, that had as many as they were in the South. And, and what would happen if there was another Nat Turner kind of scare? So I think that's right. You bring up an important point, the uh, fear of uh, some kind of combination between northern abolitionists and southern slaves. Uh, was very much in the southern mind and remember John Brown's raid uh, happened only a year earlier and I think that the impact of John Brown's raid despite the fact that it had failed uh, loomed very large uh, in the southern mind in the case of the John Brown raid it had been put down primarily by United States Marines uh, who captured John Brown uh, but what would happen if the United States Army was commanded by somebody who did not, who, who was anti-slavery? That was part of their fear, that since they had lost control of the national government and especially of the commander-in-chief of the army, the president, uh, what's going to happen if a future John Brown or a future Nat Turner uh, raises a slave rebellion in the South? Um, so I think I think that, that we can't. We can't uh, uh, exclude from this the fear, I think you, you raised a good point, the fear of a slave rebellion, uh, but in a special way of the fear of a slave rebellion in combination with uh, friendly supporters rather uh, of the slave rebellion in the North rather than friendly supporters of putting, that, of putting down that slave rebellion, which had existed before. Yes, way back there. Um, I'll go back a little bit to the election results because I think I think they have a lot to do with the timing as to why succession occurred when it did. I don't think it's a good analogy to compare the last election in 1860 because it's a much different type of division. In the last election, we don't have red and blue states. We have red and blue houses on every street. You know, everybody knows someone who voted for Kerry or Bush. Now, go back to 1860. You have what would have been equivalent of in the last election, 15 states. Nobody in the state knows anybody that voted for Bush. There's no one in a state legislator who voted for Bush. There's no governor in the, And all those states are right next to each other. <coughs> so when discussion begins, why are we part of this system, there's no one to say, well, I, I, it worked for me. I voted for him. No, there's no other voice in all those states. And, it, and in their mind, there's a failure of the system. How can... How can a section of the country just ignore another tires than another part of the country where zero people voted for? I think that's key to the time. No, I think you're absolutely right, and that's a good point. Mm -hmm. As somebody um, noted very soon after the 2004 election, um, despite the, this 
talk about uh, a profound division between red and blue states in, in the United States in both 2000 and 2004. 45% of the people in Alabama, for example, voted for John Kerry. And that's different, as you very, very uh, eloquently point out, from the situation in 1860. Yes? But it, it just accentuates, as you're pointing out, um, how powerful those perceptions are of these people don't understand us, they don't have our values, you know, so, you know, how can they, how can we remain aligned with this country? The question that I have to raise, and I sometimes raise it in class without answer, is how much does the question of sovereignty play into it once these realizations kind of come together and they feel alienated from the North, cut off, uh, all these things are going to happen, the fear factor, to what degree did they begin to say, if there was not just one, not one state, not just the South Carolina leaving, but a combination of states leaving, could we create a sovereign nation which then could interact with the rest of the world on its own to its either economic advantage or social advantage? And once the war begins, Lincoln's very careful not to play into that. You know, it doesn't refer to it as a war. It's a, it's a, it's a rebellion. It's an internal thing, discouraging the, the contact with Europe. How much of that was in, on their minds the sovereignty of, the, of their own country? Well, that's a good question. Um, uh, and another way to ask it, I think, is would South Carolina have seceded if it believed that it was the only state that was going to secede? So what gave South Carolinians on December 20th when they voted unanimously to secede? The vote in the state convention was 168 to zero uh, to secede from the United States. What what gave them a basis for believing that Mississippi and Florida and Alabama and so on were also going to secede? Um, because that's what you're saying, is that South Carolina seceded on the assumption that that would, um, that that would be the first domino, as it were, and that 7, 11, maybe 15 dominoes would also fall, and that, there, and that would make a viable nation. Can you answer that question? I mean, you say you, you bring this up without answering it, but what about that? But, well, there are there is the social connection, the aristocratic connection among the, the planter class, uh, the commonality of, of the ownership of slaves among that elite rather than among all the people in, as a whole. And I think they saw that. I think whether perceived as real or otherwise, they believed they had that connection to the other states. Yeah, anybody else want to come in? And that's some of the people back there. Yes, go ahead. Uh, I would like to know what the Southern leadership learned from the Nashville Convention. And would that be a basis, the beginning of the basis of the belief that if South Carolina would succeed, others would follow? Everybody understand the allusion here to the Nashville Convention? Uh, I think that you, it's a good point because uh, at the time of the Nashville Convention in 1850, uh, I think there were a lot of South Carolinians and, for that matter, Mississippians who wanted to secede, but they were held back by the belief that uh, rather than acting alone, there ought to be some kind of consensus among several states uh, acting together. Uh, and and that, that council of delay or or consensus 
actually blunted the momentum of possible secession in 1850, along with, of course, the Compromise of 1850 that at least provided enough reassurance to some southern southern leaders that uh, maybe, you know, maybe they should back off this time. But one of the lessons that South Carolina, um, what shall we call them, fire eaters, because that was the term used at the time, uh, took away from that is that uh, next time they shouldn't wait for consensus. They should go ahead and act um, on the on the belief, and they would have said the confident belief that if if one state takes the lead, others will follow. I think you're right to suggest that that's the lesson learned, at least by South Carolinians and maybe some of the the more powerful advocates of secession in other states like William Lomsey, Ansi in, in Alabama, for example. Uh, that they should that's that that's better than waiting for consensus. Act. Don't wait. Waiting is fatal. Yeah. I think also that next this next uh, ten year period from eighteen fifty to sixty, which we call of course the decade of controversy. I think South Carolina I think begins to see a pattern <clears throat> where they're going to act because the chips are on their side by 1860 to do without waiting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in 1850, there was no presidential election, and no president was elected that Southerners thought were hostile to their institutions. They, in 1850, the issue was the admission of California as a free state. Uh, that doesn't carry quite the powerful um, uh, threat although some, some Southerners did see it as a threat because now you have 16 free states and only 15 slave states. And where are any more slave states going to come from uh, unless we're allowed to annex Cuba or unless we're going to allowed to send filibusters into Nicaragua and bring it in and so on and so forth. But somehow that was not as, as powerful uh, an incentive as Lincoln's election 10 years later. And you're absolutely right, too, that there was an awful lot of water that went over the dam during the 1850s that made things even more volatile by 1860. Yes? I've been teaching European history the last few years, and I wonder how much connection there is that way. Not direct connection, but in European history, there's a lot of the 1848 revolutions and all that with cultural nationalism versus political nationalism. I, the last couple of years it's been dawned on me that maybe this is just kind of a, a worldwide trend. The Industrial Revolution over in Europe is farther along than what it is here. You know, that believes that, you know, we're 30, 40 years behind or whatever. I, I wonder how much that the Southerners saw themselves as a different culture and said there's no way to protect it, much like many, you know, European nations are trying to do, like under Napoleon or whatever saying, look, I, I can't win. Mm-hmm. The, the language we speak seems to be two different languages. We, we don't value the same stuff, whether it's aristocrat versus, you know, democrat or whatever you want to call it. And I just wonder if, if you as historian, you know, doing a lot more research, do you, do you see any connection? Is there any writings between groups of people across the, the pond, you know, and, and the fear or the hope that Britain and France will help us out when we break away or anything like that? Yes, there is, and you bring up a good point. And I think it could even be carried further, and I actually in one essay did carry it further. But you're absolutely right that the 19th century was a period in which uh, there was a powerful manifestation of cultural, and I would say even ethnic nationalism. Ethnic nationalism is something we're very familiar with now. 
um, in Europe, or for that matter, take Iraq and Turkey with the Kurdish nationalism there, the desire by the Kurdish ethnic group uh, to create its own nation, even though it, now, it doesn't now have a nation. But there was a lot of that going on in Europe in the, in the early part of the 19th century, uh, including 1848, when uh, the Hungarians, for example, uh, basically tried to secede from the Austrian Empire. Or when Greece was ruled by Turkey uh, and struck for its own ethnic and cultural independence. And these movements evoked a lot of sympathy from European liberals in Britain uh, and other countries. They also evoked a lot of sympathy in the United States. And much of that sympathy was in the American South. And, and I think a lot of Southerners did see some connections between their own aspirations for a separate nationality based on a, a different culture. And in a moment, I'll even argue they believed a different ethnic um, uh, identity than the rest of the United States. So I think there was this, some of this um, cultural nationalism, if we can call it that, which, which had political overtones, obviously, in a place like Hungary or Greece, um, or for that matter, Ireland, uh, where, of course, the British government didn't sympathize with these manifestations of cultural nationalism. Uh, that was in the air in the 19th century, and a lot of, uh, a lot of Southern cultural nationalists drew on it. But there's this very interesting phenomenon that became very powerful in the 1850s among a segment of the, what shall we call them, the Southern intelligentsia, that that uh, proceeded to create a separate ethnic identity for Southerners. And here is the way the argument went. Uh, New England was settled by the Puritans in the 17th century. And the Puritans developed a certain kind of ethnic and cultural identity, which Southerners did not like. Southerners, the South was settled by the Cavaliers, um, who had carried on a civil war in England in the 1640s against the Puritans. And so here was a reprise in the 1850s of this struggle between the Puritans and the Cavaliers of the 1640s. Now, that's not ethnic on, on the face of it, but the Southerners made it ethnic by saying the Cavaliers of the 17th century were descended from the Normans who had conquered England in the 11th century and had ruled over the Anglo-Saxons who were the ancestors of the Puritans. So there was this largely fictional, but that doesn't mean it wasn't powerful, <coughs> creation of a separate ethnic identity for the Southerners that went back to the Cavaliers and eventually to the Normans. And the Cavaliers are an aristocratic race. The Normans are a ruling race. They conquered and ruled the Anglo-Saxons. The, Anglo the, 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 the Puritans... Uh, and Anglo-Saxons are a subordinate race having been conquered and ruled you know maybe this sounds ridiculous to you but it became a powerful current in, in certain southern circles in the 1850s yes 
Well, would you say that Joe Schmo Southerner bought into that? I mean, that's what I always have a hard time talking with, with my students is it's when the Joe Schmo buys into whatever <coughs> the high ideal is or the theory or whatever, that's when movement <coughs> comes. Would that have been talked about? Would that have been in the newspapers? Or Well, you, you raised the important question. It was in the newspapers. Uh, there would be newspapers like the Richmond Dispatch where I've seen editorials that, you know, Went, went along with this idea uh, and, and talked about th th here's the way the identity went Yankee means Puritan means Anglo-Saxon um, Southerner means Cavalier means Norman um, whether Joe Schmo in the South who didn't own slaves and two thirds of the Southern whites did not belong to slave owning families bought into this is something we don't really know um, because they're not the ones who are talking about this. It's the intelligentsia, people like George Fitzhugh, uh, who, of course, with a name like Fitzhugh, could claim that kind of descent uh, from Cavalier and Norman um, and, 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 uh, and so on. I remember that uh, one, of, one of Robert E. Lee's famous nephews was named Fitzhugh Lee. Uh, cavalry commander in the Confederate Army. So, I mean, uh, J.B.D. DeBow claimed Norman uh, ancestry because he's, he's actually a French Huguenot descent, but the Huguenots supposedly had Norman ancestry too. I mean, there's a whole um, construction of an ethnic identity here on the part of people like DeBow and Fitzhugh and others in the South. These are just the two of the best known uh, of the people who did this. But whether Joe Schmo bought into it or ever would have bought into it, uh, you know, or, or, or Joe Sixpack, as we might say today, uh, is, is another matter. Uh, but who, who creates the, the sort of uh, um, temper of a society? I think it does tend to be the intelligentsia, and eventually some of these ideas do filter down. They may not have had time to filter down in the case of the South and the Confederacy, but the Confederacy had established its independence and had become an independent nation, it might have filtered down. Who knows? Lots of other hands came up, and I think we got diverted into a different channel here, so let's get back to secession. Yes? I just wanted to raise a question, because I've always accepted the uh, argument that the Southerners were upset that they couldn't expand slavery into the territories, but if they seceded, is it, again, isn't this counterproductive because then the territories would be shut off to them? Where were they going to expand? Uh -huh. Well, I mean, somebody I mean, else answered that. They, I mean, did they have the army, the military, to take over Cuba and Nicaragua? Were they planning to go into South America? Yes. <coughs> At least their leaders were. And indeed, one of the first things the Southerners uh, did, the Texans did, was to invade New Mexico. Uh, in the winter of 1861-62 uh, of with the idea of adding it to the Confederacy. Um, and if they had been successful, uh, they would have probably, as they had been trying to do it all through the 1850s, uh, try to acquire more Mexican territory uh, and, uh, and Cuba. And when you ask would they have been powerful enough to do it, well, they thought they could develop a powerful enough army to defeat the United States. And having done so, you know, who's going to stop them from going into Cuba? So, yes, the, the answer to that is that 
they thought they had a much better chance to add slave territory as an independent nation than they did by remaining in the United States. But this would be territory where slavery could really flourish. You know, not Utah. <laughs> uh, or Oregon. But rather more of Mexico. Cuba, where slavery already existed. Cuba had more slaves than any slave state except Virginia. 400,000 slaves in Cuba in 1860. Uh, and as, as you know, there had been many efforts during the 1850s to annex Cuba, uh, defeated by northern votes. Well, now, no, no northern votes, you know, we can get Cuba. Because a lot of the slave-owning uh, uh, elite in Cuba wanted to be annexed to the United States. They were restive under Spanish rule. It was a Spanish colony. Um, and so a lot of the southern <coughs> leaders assumed that, you know, we'd create a slave empire. Um, now that we're free from Yankee domination. Now, not everybody in the South was like that, but again, it, a lot of the, a lot of the more aggressive secessionist expansionists were. Yeah. I know this is entirely a side route at this point, but did that idea then resurface during the uh, Spanish-American Wars at the end of the 19th century? Did some of that desire to annex Cuba, was that a manifestation of this earlier attitude? Anybody want to try to answer that question? Everybody, everybody get a question? Well, the rest of you, yeah. Well, I know an ex-Confederate was in charge of the Army in Cuba, so I don't know if that's a good question. Yeah, well, we yeah, fought uh, for the United States <coughs> in the Spanish-American War. Ideas like that. I, 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 yes? The, the Teller Amendment will go against that, the yeah. idea that we're not going to annex mm-hmm. right from the start. Yeah. I think, actually, uh, it would be pretty hard to to draw this connection. I think that all of the drum beating for intervening in Cuba was uh, you know, to, to free them from Spanish rule and Spanish oppression. And of course, slavery had been abolished in Cuba in the 1880s. So I think the, 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 the dominant thrust in the case of uh, intervention that led to the Spanish-American War was more of, you know, we're, we're going to bring democracy to Cuba. You've heard you've heard this uh, phrase more recently. Uh, uh, I, I think that was more the ideology than than we're going to expand southern influence, despite the fact that Joe Wheeler was a general in the United States Army rather than the Confederate States Army. And, he, and so was Fitzhugh Lee, by the way. Both Fitzhugh Lee and, and Joe Wheeler, who had been Confederate cavalry commanders, were now uh, United States Army um, generals in the Spanish American War. Yes. You know, I, it just occurred to me to throw this out uh, when Texas was brought up. Um, you know, the, the entire myth about uh, the Alamo and Texas and freedom when, in fact, they were fighting for slavery. But how much did that event, I wonder, affect and inspire, perhaps, those people uh, throughout the rest of the South to do what Texas did successfully and in the name of freedom? Ironically. Well, what, is, what about the rest of you thinking of that? You raised two questions, I think. Um, and one is whether the example of uh, Texas seceding from Mexico and winning its own independence inspired uh, the idea that other southern states could, the whole southern region could secede from the United States and establish its independence. I think to some degree there was that just in the same way that uh, we talked a few moments ago about the current of, uh, of cultural nationalism in Europe that was powerful in the middle of the 19th century as an example 
that Southerners could draw on. I think that probably they could draw on this example, too. And that did come up um, in, some of the, in some of the rhetoric about secession, although I don't think it was necessarily the most powerful uh, element there. But the other question you raised, an interesting one, is uh, the, what we see as a paradox of people professing to fight for freedom at the same time that they hold slaves and want to expand the institution of slavery. How do we resolve this paradox? How does, I mean, to, some, to us it seems to be a paradox. Was it a paradox to them? Why not? There's a general yeah. acceptance of eugenics throughout the 19th century. Speak um, up, I don't think anybody can hear you. General acceptance of eugenics throughout the 19th century. Well, spell that out a little more. Uh, the belief that the white race was a superior race, that there was uh, a Germanic superiority or, or Anglo-Saxon superiority, that belief was just per- throughout the entire culture. Well, how does that resolve the <coughs> paradoxical people professing to fight for freedom while wanting to expand oh. slavery? Uh, they're fighting for their own freedom, their, their right to property. Okay. Is it might not might it not be given this idea that you feel superior, um, you know, if you you know the paternalistic attitude mm-hmm. in general? Uh, yes, responsible adult people should be free, but should we should we not protect those who are incapable of you know such as like children? Uh, we don't give them rights, of course, or, but we are here to help them out and not be great about that. Or women. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think that I think that's a key to it. Freedom is something uh, for those who uh, can can handle the responsibilities of freedom. Children cannot do so. Uh, women cannot do so, at least not completely. And neither can non-whites, for that matter, Indians as well as uh, African Americans. So I think I mean that that's where your your concept of racial superiority, eugenics, however you want to call it. Um, freedom was equated with independence. And independence was equated with the ability to uh, earn a living and manage, uh, you know, manage your, uh, uh, your life and, and, and um, Exercise these rights and responsibilities in a in a in a in a, in a way that uh, maintained the stability of society, and only white males, were, adult males, were capable of doing this. I think that was a widespread assumption, not just in the South, but more powerful in the South than anywhere else. Yeah. In all your studies that you've taken a look at, letters and whatnot, if we look at the issue of secession, how common is the the assumption that it's the elite white southern aristocrat that's pulling in your common farmer, your common citizen who really maybe doesn't have a clear opinion one way or the other on the matter of whether or not we should secede. Is it is it that everyone, the majority of everyone is let's do it, we're all behind you or we elite here are we're gonna do it, you're all coming with us. Everybody hear that question? Anybody want to venture uh well, speculation to answer that question? Yeah. Well, in the pro-slavery argument, don't they repeatedly go back to sightings in the Bible, or at least in the Old Testament, about um, hierarchy and responsibility? And I don't know if I'm a poor Southerner who can barely survive and is illiterate and 
walk around barefoot, at least I'm better than the slave, and so I need to fight to maintain this institution. Yeah, this is what uh, has been called Herent Folk Democracy. Have you, have you encountered that phrase, anybody? Encountered that phrase? Herent Folk, a German word meaning the, 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 a ruling race, if you will, or a ruling people. Uh, and the idea here is that all white people belong to this ruling race. There can be class divisions within it, but the most important division in society is between whites and non-whites. Um, and that all whites are in the same in the same boat. That the poorest uh, white man is still superior to a non-white in the theory. Um, and that, I think, was uh, a widespread assumption uh, for the, in the United States, not just in the South, again. Uh, and it was something that most non-slaveholding or non-elite whites in the South bought into. They may not have bought into this idea that they were all descended from Cavaliers and Normans, but they did buy into the idea that all whites were somehow in a equal plane compared with non-whites. Now, uh, yes? How much did the sort of, the, I guess, the American dream play into that too? Of, of, you know, I may not own slaves, but my grandchildren might. Yeah. My children might. Yeah. Or I might myself, if I can get ahead. If I can get ahead, if I can just, yeah. you know, that's right. hang tough until my ship comes in. Yeah, that, that, that's an important point. Uh, if you take a, a snapshot view of the South at any given time, let's say in the 1850s, you'll find out that uh, only one-third or less than one-third of Southern whites belong to a slaveholding family. But that's a snapshot. If we have a moving picture of over time, you'll find that, A, a lot of these non-slaveholding whites uh, aspire to become slaveholders and and let's say there it's a young family a, a 28 year old father uh, with two young children who has a 100 acre farm uh, and he may aspire that by the time he's 50 years old he will have acquired more acreage uh, he will have been successful and he will have been able to buy slaves and to leave them to his children and in fact that happened the South was not a static society. It was a, there was a lot of mobility within the South uh, in that respect. So if you take a and 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 sometimes other uh, other whites had more than just a racial stake in slavery. This Heron folk democracy idea. They also had an economic stake, even if they never owned slaves, because sometimes they would rent slaves. Slave hiring uh, was important. Your your small farmer who didn't own slaves would sometimes rent a slave or several slaves to help at the harvest time or to help uh, maybe he's maybe he's a skilled carpenter uh, who doesn't own any slaves but can rent slaves to to help him in his construction business uh, and that went on so that there are a lot more than just one third of southern whites who had even an economic stake in slave slavery as as opposed <coughs> to the racial stake in slavery that we mean when we talk about hair and folk democracy so to get back to your question about whether southern non-slaveholding whites had to be somehow dragged by the elite into this idea that they all had a stake in society 
I think that they didn't that, that there was a lot of consensus among southern non-slaveholding whites that they did have a stake in, in society now that's not the same thing as saying that they believed in secession because I think your question focused on whether it was only the elites who saw Lincoln's election as a threat and therefore supported secession and a lot of northern of people, northern people, especially northern Republicans, including Lincoln, believed that it was the southern elite and not the whole southern white population who had dragged these states into secession. Uh, for a long time, well into the war, a lot of northern Republicans, including Lincoln, assumed that secession had been a consequence of the manipulation by a small group of elite um, a conspiracy uh, of the fire eaters to, to persuade the rest of the southern people against their own interests to go into secession and that they had done it by lying about Lincoln saying that Lincoln is this tyrant who's going to uh, come down here and free all the slaves and make them equals with you. Uh, and that the northern Republicans are going to force you. I mean, this rhetoric is in the secession uh, debates. <laughs> you read some of it in, in uh, Charles Dew's article. Are, are going to force you into equality with your Negro slaves. They're going to free the slaves and, and uh, they'll, they'll marry, marry your sisters or your daughters. I mean, and, and so a lot of, a lot of uh, Northerners believed that this kind of rhetoric had created such a fear among non-slaveholding whites in the South that against their own interests they were swept into secession. I think that's wrong. That while that rhetoric was used, uh, I don't think that most Southern whites, non-slaveholding whites, were manipulated by some sort of elite conspiracy into going along with this. I think that basically they voluntarily supported it, at least in the seven states that first went out. Um, that the non-slaveholding whites saw from their own experience and their own um, uh, ideology uh, this they saw they saw just as much of a threat to their well-being as the elite slaveholders did. Now, there were parts of the South where that was not true, in the Appalachian uplands, for example, uh, western Virginia, eastern Tennessee, western North Carolina, <coughs> um, where they had long been at odds with the um, slaveholding sections of the state. But the mass of southern non-slaveholding whites actually lived in the Piedmont and Tidewater areas of states like uh, North Carolina and Georgia and so on uh, where they felt they had as much stake in all of this as, as the slaveholders themselves did. So I think that the northern assumption that the non-slaveholding whites had somehow been coerced and co-opted uh, in this assumption was, was wrong. Yes? Um, I use this uh, letter. I'm, you're probably, I'm sure you're familiar with Bell Wiley, mm -hmm. the historian. Mm -hmm. And uh, he found this letter, and I use it in class. It's a North Carolinian writing home. I guess he's in Virginia with Lee. And uh, he says, you know, I, he's writing to a friend, I guess. He says, you know, I don't own the present <coughs> cause of the war. 
But I don't want my wife and children to be raised on the same level with the African race. Exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Exactly. And it wasn't that because some elite slaveholder was telling him that. I think he came to that conclusion of his own volition. Yep. Yes. And, and doesn't this get back to the issue of nationalism? Uh, you know, nationalism really seems to me to revolve around it's a double-edged sword. On one hand, it can unite a country, and on the other hand, it can divide a country. And certainly, it, it revolves around the issue of what you identify with. You know, how do you define yourself? <coughs> and I would think that even uh, poor white Southerners would, you know, find their identity with a shared one with uh, other, even aristocratic white Southerners. And yeah, I think the I think the ties of race were stronger than the divisions of class. And that's the, the basic, sort of simple way to put it. Um, I've been reading a book on Jews in the Confederacy. And mm-hmm. most of the Jews in the Confederacy came over from Europe and had strong Ashkenazi beliefs from Germany. But yet, when the Civil War came, they sided religion, they decide state over religion because Judaism does not particularly lend itself to war and <clears throat> cause of the South, I mean, you know, civil war and stuff like that. But there were time and time again, these folks decided that I am a South Carolinian, I am, a, I am from Louisiana, over mm-hmm. their religious or whatever and they went into, you know, they served in the South. So I think that that goes to um, the core, or one of the causes, that they really felt state, that they were South Carolinians. Therefore, I'm going to defend, or I'm going to go with my state instead of whatever else, my religion or whatever else tells me that, you know, I'm going to... um, yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you could say the same thing about other immigrant groups or other religious groups, too. I think that probably, again, just as race trumped class in the South, I think uh, regional identity trumped other kinds of identity uh, for most Southerners, not all, obviously, but for most of them, just as it is for the for, for Southern Jews. Uh, after all, many of the blacks were already Christian. So yes, religion was not an issue. No, religion was not an issue in the Civil War. I mean, uh, the churches had already, some of the, uh, back in the 1840s, the two largest Protestant denominations had divided into northern and southern branches, the Methodist Episcopal Church and the Baptist Church. So that in 1844, basically what happened was that the Southern Methodists, most of them, seceded from the Methodist Episcopal Church over the question of whether a slave owner could be uh, elected as a bishop. Methodist Church, some of you, I'm sure, Methodists, has elected bishops. And they split over that issue in 1844. And when the Northern Methodist majority voted against a Southerner for bishop on the grounds that he was a slave owner, Southern the Methodists seceded and formed the Methodist Episcopal Church South, which stayed separate until 1939. And then in 1845, the National Baptist Convention also split uh, over the question of whether a slave owner could be appointed as a missionary of the Baptist Church. 
So the Southern Baptist Church was created and the American Southern Baptist Convention and the American Baptist Convention, and they've never gotten back together again. Uh, they're still separate. So, again, um, <coughs> sectionalism, if we can call it that, um, triumphed over religious unity and religious identity. Saw a hand back there, yeah. Is the best example of that is Lee. I'm sorry? Lee is the best example of that, perhaps. Former superintendent of West Point. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, Beauregard had been superintendent also. Um, yes, I mean, they, they again, they're... they're well, every, every, every um, officer in the United States Army who resigned to go with the Confederacy, again, it's a question of one kind of identity triumphing over another kind of identity. Yes? You may have given short trip to your analogy of the 2004 election. I think that um, in uh, 1860, I think most Southerners in the Deep South would have known somebody who voted for Bell. And a vote for Bell was a vote against secession. Or they might have known somebody who uh, known somebody who voted for Douglas. Yeah. So those Both are, of them got yeah. voice in the South. So I think there may be a little bit more to that. Well, do you want to respond to that back there? Because uh, you were the one who made the point. Yeah, but the point I was making, I don't think, was as much about voting for or against secession. The fact that the person that you simply could not live with was elected. And I'm not sure that I'm not sure it was all about a vote for or against secession. I think it was all about an entire section of the country did not want Lincoln. No one there voted for Lincoln. It was a failure of the system in their mind. But all, all the bell voters didn't want secession. That was the one. That was the only thing they were clear on. No, but I think his analogy still holds in the sense that while probably every Southern white knew somebody who voted for either Bell or Douglas, they did not know anybody who voted for Lincoln. And, and in, in, in 2004, everybody knew some. If you voted for Bush, you still knew people who voted for Kerry. In, in 2004, if, uh, you know, if this room was divided 51-49, the Kerry people in this room can look at a Bush person and say, you're an idiot. Um, but in Alabama in, in 1860, in Alabama in 1860, all you can blame is the system. There's no person around you that you can look at and say, um, wow, you, you, you voted mistakenly. All they can do is say, what, what's wrong with this system? Wait a minute, the idiots voted for Ralph Nader. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and yet it seems, to, it seems to revolve around this issue of identity. Who am I? You know, and the Southerners did not identify whatsoever with those people in the North who voted for Lincoln. Even if they weren't against secession, even if they weren't against secession, they were Southerners. That was their identity first and foremost. Saw a hand way in the back there. Um, I uh, have a question about the region, you were talking about the regional split, and she just brought it up, another sort of northern-southern type of an identity, where, you know, the southern southerners were protecting their right to own slaves, and they justified it based in the Bible, saying that we were taking paternally taking care of these individuals, where they were pointing the finger at northern industrialists and saying, look at what you're doing to your workers. You're not taking care of them. You're not providing for them. At least we provide for our slaves, or, you know, our slaves... We take care of these people down here. You are not doing that. And so there was that justification for their, their way of life. And, you know, 
Well, that's exactly right. That was an essential part of the pro-slavery argument, the idea that um, every society is divided into classes uh, and into different, even in some ways, castes uh, in society. And we have a kind of southern pro-slavery argument, say, where we have a system where we take care of the, the poor and the, the dependent and the subordinate and you turn them out to starve. And uh, you, you brag about the superiority of a free labor system, but the only freedom in a free labor system is the freedom to starve. Uh, that was an essential part of the pro-slavery argument. Of course, the other side of that is uh, the northern free labor argument, is that uh, maybe you take care of your slaves, but they're always going to be slaves, and they can be bought and sold. Uh, the children can be separated from their parents, etc. Uh, and uh, the slaves never have any chance to get ahead in society. Uh, we may have people who don't own property and or have to or are dependent on the wages, but at least they have an opportunity to get ahead in society. And we're not going to sell the children. So I mean, th- there was there was no meeting of the minds really in these, this pro-slavery versus free labor argument. They both they both attack the other system as being exploitative and cruel. Uh, and and defended their own system as being the opposite, and and you know this this uh, there was this there was no meeting of the minds in uh, the, the extreme free labor argument versus the extreme pro slavery argument. Yes, and as Lincoln said, that whenever I hear somebody defending slavery, I would like it like to see them try it out for themselves. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. to, to what extent is the southern system taking heat internally? As you've got this push for industrialization, you've got the upper south, which is making a move. You've got manumission societies. You can call upon Jefferson, who almost ended slavery in Virginia, uh, Hinton Helper and his impending crisis. How much is the south reacting almost more towards their internal divisions as opposed to reacting to Lincoln's election? You raise a good question, and indeed a number. Did everybody hear that question? Uh, uh, some historians have argued precisely that the uh, secession movement was a response to these kinds of internal stresses in Southern society as a way to resolve these stresses um, by uniting uh, Southerners who might otherwise be divided in opposition to the North. It's just like, um, in a way, I suppose, uh, when Seward wanted to cook up a foreign war to try to reunite North and South, uh, there's some historians who argue that the secession movement was an attempt to uh, cook up an, an external enemy in order to unite southern people and forestall this internal crisis. Uh, I think there's something to that, but that the argument is exaggerated. Uh, yes, it's true that um, uh, Jefferson and George Washington himself, George Mason, and a number of other southerners, slaveholders all, in the founding fathers' generation, had been a- theoretically anti-slavery, uh, and that as late as 1831, the Virginia leg- 1830, I guess it was the Virginia, uh, it was 1831, the Virginia 1831-32, the Virginia legislature had debated the possibility of abolishing slavery in Virginia, although they voted against it, uh, and that Hinton Rowan Helper, a North Carolinian, had written the impending crisis in 1857, which said that slavery was holding down Southern whites, that it was a terrible institution that was more cru- was more repressive to non-slaveholders than it was to the slaves themselves. So there were these internal stresses in, in Southern society. However, I think that the 
that the 1830s were a kind of major turning point here where the old generation of the Jeffersonians who had questioned slavery and had looked forward to its eventual demise were pretty much disappearing from the scene. Uh, and that John C. Calhoun and George Fitzhugh and others who defended slavery as a positive good had, um, had already won over the hearts and minds of a lot of people in the South who might in an earlier generation have questioned the morality and utility and practicality of slavery. And that a lot of the people who advocated industrialization of the South uh, said that this was perfectly compatible with slavery, that slaves could be employed in southern industry, and indeed were employed in southern industry. James B. DeBow would be um, example, exhibit A on this, a strong advocate of southern economic diversification, who was also a very strong defender of slavery. In fact, he wanted to reopen the African slave trade and bring in more slaves. And Hit and Ruin Helper, I think, uh, had had relatively, he, I think he scared some of the southern elite, but uh, and and they banned his book from the south. And if you were caught with uh, with a hidden drone helper, you could. In fact, one guy, one professor at the University of North Carolina was fired from his job because uh, he he was talking like hidden drone helper. Helper actually had to get that book published in New York. He couldn't get it published in the south. So while there was worry about that, I think some of the southern um, elite, if we can call them that, was was this was in this was one of their fears uh, that if if they stayed in if they stayed in a union ruled uh, dominated by northern Republicans, that eventually these northern Republicans would create a fifth column of hit and roll and helpers in the South that would undermine the South from, from within. So that fear was there. There's no question about that. Um, but I, I, I think it was, it was not so much the fear of the internal divisions in the South as it was a fear that these Yankees would come down not only and, 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 and create more Negroan <coughs> helpers in the South, but also create more Nat Turners in the South. So it was fear of the outside agitators coming in and, and stirring up things in the South. If we only free from those outside agitators, things will be okay here in the South. So I think that's the, the way this, this argument played out. Yes? I'm just wondering how industrialization in general was interpreted by many Southerners. Uh, certainly if they went to the North, they could see the horrors of that period of industrialism, and they would not want that in their bucolic South. So I'm wondering if they were fearful of, of industrialization, or did they feel that they could take that particular element of northern of the northern economy and improve it in the south in their you know to meet their own cultural values? Everybody hear that question? Anybody want to speculate an answer to it? I just caught kind of the tail end here, but is she saying something about the southern? The Northerners creating more competition for themselves down in the South? No. Her, her, <coughs> question, her question, uh, to, to uh, rephrase it, tell me if I get it wrong. Okay. Uh, the question is, uh, did, did Southerners, um, was the dominant Southern white attitude one of, of fear and loathing of becoming industrialized because they saw this as introducing um, uh, uh, class conflict, poverty, cities, crime, 
uh, all the things that they associated, at least in their ideology, with industrialization in the North and in England. So did they reject it? Or did they think that they could actually industrialize in a different way that would avoid these evils? Uh, because they could they could actually have... That's that's your question. Well, I mean, we're not going to fall into the, the abyss here to believe that there was no industry in the South that couldn't compete at some level. So I, I think that um, they already saw some of that stuff happening in the South. But I think that somebody touched on it earlier that if you do free this large portion of the Southern population, then what's going to happen? We're going to have perhaps higher crime because people are going to be unemployed or maybe um, with lower wage earners are going to have competition. Uh, and if there is unemployed, then you're going to have crime that you can have to deal with in the South. So perhaps there is some something. I've gotten the impression sometimes that while there was some Southern industry and a little heavy industry, but maybe there was a sort of a, a NIMBY consciousness. We'll import that stuff from up there where the place is already polluted with factories and factory workers, but we don't want to have it really right around us. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think, yes. I think it's also just sound economics. The slaves were a much, much better investment than they put money into something that's going to get you a lower rate of return. Well, the Tredegar Ironworks... Uh, really outpaced Britain as far as production of machinery until they lost uh, the mineral rights in Tennessee when Grant came down. Mm-hmm. And Tredegar Works employed quite a few slaves, too. Yes. The key industry to the South, though, is uh, the processing of cotton cloth, which they really could not do in the uh, South before the onset of electrical power. Most of uh, cotton processing is done in mills in the North and in England where you've got flowing water. The mills mm-hmm. were water-powered. So, in a sense, the, the, the whole cotton industry is dependent on in, uh, on uh, higher industry to process their main product. Mm-hmm. Well, this gets, but uh, I think that we're wandering away a little bit from the question, which was the southern mindset and their attitude toward uh, industrialization. Yes? I think the northern industrialization is the because of the increased population well, that's yes, I think that's true, but that's the southern perception of the threat of northern industrialization. I think the question really focused on southern attitudes toward uh, industrialization in their own society. The argument that unless you diversify and industrialize, your economy is going to remain a colonial economy. Uh, that you send that you send your raw materials, principally cotton, in the case of the South, uh, to the north or to uh, England to be processed, thereby losing the um, losing the profits on on uh, manufacturing yourself. Spoiled by their own success. Yes, that's true. In the 1850s, they would, this this was so profitable for for growing the cotton, but it also created an economic dependency. You export your raw materials, and you have to uh, you have to buy most of your manufactured products. Why why not? And if you're going to, if you, if you, especially if you're looking forward to political independence, how are you going to be politically independent if you remain economic, politically independent if you remain economically dependent? So I think that's what your your question was was focusing on. I think the South there was a divided mind in the South about that. There were certainly some Southerners. Debeau is one I've mentioned. Another guy uh, would be William Gregg. He was a South Carolinian who actually established a, a textile, a, a fairly large complex of textile mills at a place called Graniteville in South Carolina, which, by the way, was driven by water power. There was water power in the South. It wasn't, you know, you 
could have been textile manufacturing using water power in the South. Um, uh, and, 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 and basically said, look, um, in, in, why should we send all our cotton up to Lowell, Massachusetts or over to Liverpool or Manchester um, and, and uh, lose all of the value added from manufacturing and then be forced to buy all our clothing from somewhere else? Why not do it here? So there were Southerners who, who were in favor of it, but then there were other Southerners, Southerners sort of like that, uh, who, um, who said, no, we don't want these factories. Um, we, we are Jeffersonians. We believe that the best life is uh, a, a rural life, an agricultural life. Uh, we don't want the pollution. We don't want the class conflict. We don't want the disorder. We don't want the big cities. New Orleans was a pretty big city, um, but New Orleans, you know, it's all been pretty exotic and different. Um, so I think there was a divided mind in the South on industrialization. And just additionally, didn't didn't industrial society, as reflected in New York, et cetera, with the you know influx of immigrants and the uh, the class structure and the you know degenerate behavior? Isn't it all fly in the face of what Southerners thought of themselves, of their own cultures? Absolutely. Genteel and manners. Genteel and manners are kind of gentry. Well, just as the northern anti-slavery argument magnified the uh, class divisions in the South and the, and the um, oppression and tyranny of the slave-holding class, certainly Southern ideology magnified and exaggerated and distorted the nature of northern society when they portrayed uh, the working class as being um, it's something out of Dickens in London in the 1840s, that was a huge distortion and exaggeration of the nature of northern industrialization. It was closer to a description of Britain. But when Southerners identified, you know, said that all the northern workers are starving, when, when they basically said that... Uh, that, um, that uh, Immigrants and the poor in the north were mudsills who were trampled down by the ruling class in the north. That was at least as much of a distortion and exaggeration as the northern portrait of the south. When you consider women having to work and going into mines and taking their clothes off, and that's a, you know, I that, can't remember was, the exact date, you know, that's congressional testimony of people. You know, that would certainly be profoundly offensive to southerner sense of womanhood. Yeah, they're, they're, but the, the, this is a later period. This is not in the 1840s and 1850s. Uh, something like only 5% of married women in the North actually worked outside the home. And a relatively small percentage of, of unmarried women did so, usually only for a few years between the time they were 16 and the time they got married. Um, so again, I think again we've got both sides are distorting and for, for reasons of propaganda and what is really a kind of propaganda conflict and a propaganda war. Um, I'm not sure who's keeping time here, but let me, uh, if, if my itinerary uh, is, is, is correct, we're supposed to break for lunch pretty soon, but let me um, just uh, kind of sum up or, or offer you a chance to sum up in response to a question I have here that is uh, interesting to me. This whole discussion, interestingly enough, has been premised on the assumption 
that Southern whites who carried out secession following Lincoln's election did so because they saw Lincoln's election and everything associated with that, the potential that it carried for the future, as a threat to the survival of the institution of slavery, which was the basis of their culture and their way of life. What happened to the argument, which I thought I might hear, that this all had nothing to do with slavery? Everybody shares the assumption that it does have something to do with slavery? Yes. Are you talking about the economic angle? Well, the talk about the economic angle. Well, I didn't want to bring it up because it's like conspiracy theory. But there's also, like, there's, they list like eight causes what could be, you know, the cause of the Civil War. And they say that the influential bankers basically set up this rivalry, so to speak, to make a lot of money. It sounds crazy, but. There's a certain number of people who believe that. Well, I think you're, uh, what you're referring to is what we would call the Beardian argument associated with Charles Beard, and you read a little bit of that, I think, in, in the reading that I gave you, that this was not a conflict between free labor and slave labor or between freedom and slavery, but a conflict between an industrial or industrializing society and a non-industrial society over issues like credit, banking, tariffs, um, uh, government favors to certain kind of industry or certain kinds of agriculture or whatever it might be. Um, I thought I might hear more of that, but I didn't. Yes? I think you might be referring to the states' rights argument. Well, that's another one. Uh, I think I would put it in the same category as the Anglo-Saxon Norman. <laughs> okay. You want to spell that out a little more? I think it's sort of a, it's a very nice sounding explanation. It sounds way better than we fought to protect slavery. Yeah. That's what I think. How, how would you counter the states' rights argument? What would you cite to um, against it? Um, well, go ahead, Lori. Um, I actually had a student this year when we were discussing this. They said, well, if it was so so important to have states' rights, why didn't Ohio, why didn't Pennsylvania, why didn't Massachusetts, why didn't all these other states? Because it sounds good for every state to be able to say, well, we make our own laws, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was a 10th grader coming up with that argument. So I was kind of like, ooh, that's good. Um, but, um, I mean, it's true. You know, if it, states' rights was such a big deal, you know, it would have appealed to any state, not just southern states. They also had an extreme displeasure with Brigby Penn, in which case we enact states' rights in the north to say we're not going to uphold the fugitive slave law. So they argue against their own theory. Yeah, I think the fugitive slave law is a pretty strong argument against, <laughs> but there are some other things, too. I mean, one of the big issues in the late 1850s was a demand for a federal slave code in the territories uh, to enforce the Dred Scott decision which said that slavery is legal in all the territories but if it's legal in the territories how are you going to you know how are you going to implement it well you have to do so through federal power it's an expansion of the federal government to protect the right of a slaveholder to take his slaves into Kansas or into New Mexico uh, that's not states' rights. It's the opposite of states' rights, and, and um, so that. And, and, and you're certainly right about the Northern Personal Liberty Laws. These are a manifestation of states' rights by the North, which is overridden by a Southern-dominated Supreme Court or, or Congress that is that is or Democratic Party that's dominated by the South. Yes. Uh, it seemed to me that all the other arguments, uh, as far as uh, causes of the Civil War you know, came down to the fact that if during the founding of our country the southern states had not opted to be slave-based economies, would 
would any of this have evolved? In other words, everything about you know the states' rights argument, everything about the uh, you know economic argument, all of the various arguments seem to really be predicated on the fact that of that crucial decision that made made both these areas evolve as separate cultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's useful, I think, to ask yourself the question that if slavery had never existed in the United States, would there have been secession and civil war? Um, and I look around the room and virtually everybody says no. Well, that's the bottom line here, I think. Not at that point, sir. Not in 1860. Yes. Well, in 1830s. 1830s. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk about, see, this is what the gentleman the Green talked about earlier when we started this out. We talked about political power and we talked about the influence of the South in Congress. And we brought back, or we initially brought up the issue of states' rights. And I even said that I personally thought that slavery just happened to be that flashpoint. But when the Southerners started losing that influence at the federal level, that's when the dominoes started to fall. And I still feel, I mean, it's not an agricultural uh, culture versus an industrial culture, because as far as I know, Ohio was pretty agricultural during that time. So there's a lot of other things involved there, and um, I, I think it does fall to the states' rights issue. How about technology? What if Eli Whitney had never invented the cotton gin? Somebody else would have. <laughs> <laughs> so you think that the cotton gin was inevitable? Sure. Uh, I mean, it's, it's such a simple technology, um, and in fact, there's some recent... There's some recent um, scholarship in the history of technology that shows that other people were working on the same kind of thing. It's just like, you know, Robert Fulton invented the steamboat. Well, uh, he didn't actually invent it. He, he, he built the first successful steamboat, but if he hadn't done so, somebody else would have. Um, so I think uh, while it, there, there's, there's one kind of truth in the argument that it was the invention of the cotton gin that set off this huge expansion of the cotton economy which sent slavery uh, west into Alabama and Mississippi, Louisiana and Texas and so on and made it a huge part of the American economy and therefore of, of, I mean, of the southern economy and therefore the American economy and so on. It, it was a technology whose time had come, and if it hadn't been Eli Whitney, it would have been Joe Schmoll or maybe even Joseph Back. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, to get back to the argument over there, when, when our founding fathers, we were united as a country, it was expedient for us to do so. The, the survival of independent states, how long would, would that have lasted? But there were clear divisions between the, the sections of our country. As, as, as we traveled forward in history, we were always able to find a way to sort of work out those differences. But still, the states, we were United States, small U.S., you know, small U, small small S. And with Lincoln's election going back to 1850, with that compromise that wasn't really working out, the Southerners, the rhetoric starts to increase, Lincoln's election makes it clear. You know, they're not going to be able to compromise any further. And I, I think that that states' rights piece, well, we joined this willingly because it made sense for us to do so. As we continue to develop, it's making less and less sense for us to be part of this union. We have the right, therefore, we're better off in the long run to give it a go ourselves. Yeah. Uh, Brian Head from Jackson High School. Uh, my, my thought was this. I had to uh, 
heard the approach toward the cause of the Civil War as being in Washington, D.C., the uh, northern representative voice out shouting the southern representative voice as northern cities got bigger and bigger due to industrialization and therefore northern states uh, populated more heavily than southern states and that uh, therefore southern needs are being neglected by the government and we have a cause now of not getting the recognition of rights that southern states need governmentally and the reason you're doing this northern voice is because we have slaves and you don't like it it's almost like they're the cause is a states rights oriented cause but the issue is slavery and that as the war progresses it almost reverses well, uh, I think there's there's uh, there's a lot of truth to what you say, but I would I would slightly change the nature of the phraseology. I think that during the 1850s, it's the Southern voices in Congress that are winning out. Uh, they managed to pass the Fugitive Slave Law. They managed to pass the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which actually re repeals the earlier restriction on the expansion of slavery. Uh, they dominate the Supreme Court, so they get the uh, the Dred Scott decision. Uh, in 1857 uh, and what they fear what happens is that they fear the loss of that domination with Lincoln's election so it's not that they are reacting to northern domination in the 1850s they actually are the dominant force in the 1850s through their leverage control of the Democratic Party which runs the national governments from 1853 to 1861 it's the loss of that uh, and what its consequences for the future will be that that are that are at issue in, in uh, the secession crisis. Have, I think. Have you seen any uh, separation of, of cause and issue, like I just described? That, that uh, slavery wasn't more a, a less a, a cause per se as it was an issue. Yeah, I I, I think well, that's a that's actually a wonderful segue to uh, our post-lunch discussion uh, because uh, and, and I think we'll pick up and, and start right with that. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs as well as information about future programs at TAH.org slash webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.